Hello and welcome to episode number 144 of the Agro Innovations Podcast. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. This episode of the podcast has been released onto agroinnovations.com slash podcast on Monday, August 11th, 2014. On this episode of the podcast, I will be featuring an interview conducted by longtime podcast listener and supporter A.J. Tarnas with Professor Joe Kovach. I will let A.J. tell us more about Professor Kovach and the nature of the interview. But I will say that this interview comes at a particularly good time as a follow-up to the previous Agricultural Innovations podcast episode, where I spoke with Chris Stelzer of Agricultural Insights about the crisis of sustainable agriculture. And the focus of our conversation was economics and business management and how that constitutes a crisis for many agricultural producers in that the business management skills of many small-scale producers are lacking, but also that many of the economic structures in 21st century America are preventing profitability for the small-scale farmer or rancher. I think that this interview addresses many of those issues very well. And it offers some practical solutions that a person can apply to help address some of these structural and business management issues. One of the things that I think is very instructive is the way that Professor Kovach tracks his costs uh, on a per-square-foot basis, on a per-crop basis, on a per-year basis, very, very closely. And that is a great example, although he is a researcher, that is a great example for many producers that I think is worthy of emulation. Now, I am not going to comment any more on this interview after this brief introduction, so I would like to say that this and all episodes of the Agro-Innovations podcast are released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license. To learn more about that, you can visit creativecommons.org. Now, keep in mind, this interview was recorded all the way back in 2012, right before the Agro-Innovations podcast went on its extended hiatus. So, in fact... Although I am somewhat apologetic to AJ for not getting to this interview sooner, this is actually, in all reality, probably the soonest that I could have published this interview, considering I had quite a backlog of material uh, once I got the podcast started back up again, and also considering that the podcast was on hiatus for such a long time. So as AJ says at the conclusion of this interview, if you do have someone that you would like to interview in your community and have it published on the Agro-Innovations podcast site, please do so. Get in touch with me. You can contact me at podcast at agroinnovations.com, or you can click on the contact link on the website, agroinnovations.com. Now, enjoy the interview conducted by podcast listener A.J. Tarnas with Professor Joe Kovach. Hello, Agro Innovations podcast listeners. My name is AJ Tarnas, and I recently had the chance to speak with Dr. Joe Kovach, who is a professor in the entomology department at Ohio State University's OARDC campus in Worcester, Ohio. Dr. Kovach has been part of two major projects that have won him some attention 
Most recently, he's been establishing a polyculture food plot in and on top of a parking lot. Prior to this parking lot experiment, Dr. Kovach planted a one-acre polyculture food plot with the goal of producing $90,000 per year in food from that single acre. My brother and I were driving through Ohio on a very cold January day and caught up with Joe at his office. This is what he had to say. The goal was to make about eighty dollars to $90,000 an acre. And I wanted to have permanent crops as well as annual crops. I wanted to make sure that I incorporated most of the ecological principles that I've learned to manage pests. So some of those principles that I've learned is that in order to increase ecosystem stability, no matter how you define an ecosystem, it could be your backyard, it could be an acre, it could be a cornfield, you want to have it stable. And if you have a stable ecosystem, it makes it more resistant to pests and more resilient to disturbances such as droughts or pests. So it bounces back. So you want stability. So our goal was to try and find ways to increase stability. And we're trying to get rid of instability and things that are causes instability in ecosystems are a lot of cultivating. It's disruptive to the soil. Uh, a lot of mowing, a lot of planting. So we wanted to have some permanent crops and some annual crops. Another thing that's important for ecosystem stability is biodiversity. So we want to do things to increase biodiversity. And there's three types of biodiversity that we try to increase. Because when we look in the woods in your backyard, everything is not on the same plane. No. There's tall crops and there's short crops or understory plants. So we wanted to incorporate this spatial diversity. You also see that just not all one type of tree. There's multiple trees. So we want to increase genetic diversity, much like a polyculture system where we would have multiple crops. And finally, we wanted to have temporal diversity. And by that, I mean you wanted to spread harvest, fruiting and harvesting out or flowering out over time. So you don't have just all strawberries and then you're done. Yeah. So we, we did that. We used high tunnels, but we also did that with different varieties. So we had an early strawberry, mid and a late. We had an early blueberry, a mid and a late. Early planting of beans, mid and late. So we spread things out. And what that does is when the pests come in, it was like my early beans didn't get many pests. My mid beans got bean leaf beetle, you know, like crazy, and the late planting didn't. So it was like you can adjust according to what your pest problems were. So that was the three concepts we tried to do. Then we tried to plant, we planted eight different commodities. I had four tall crops, or tree or bush crops. I had apples, peaches, blueberries, and raspberries were kind of like my permanent. Strawberries were kind of like a permanent crop as well. Uh, or an annual, uh, well, I plant it as an annual and a perennial, but we can get into that later. Um, and then I had three or four different annual crops. Like I'd have tomatoes, edamame, soybeans, green beans, 
Sometimes they had pumpkins, sometimes they had fingerling potatoes. Uh, we had cucumbers one year. So I would mix that into the system. And we had to make sure that when we rotated things in our annual crops, because you can't follow tomatoes and strawberries together, so we had to develop a rotation so we knew each year where things were planted, so the next year we couldn't wouldn't follow the strawberries. And then one year, I ran the project for six, seven, eight years, right. and I um, made sure that some years I couldn't plant tomatoes because I just had to give the soil time to rest before I started again. For its um, mineral content or to break disease cycles? Disease or? and insect cycles, primarily. Um, I had drip irrigation. For weed control, I use landscape cloth, which I think is well worth the investment. I had planted alleyways with grass, perennial ryegrass. What that did, well, having the perennial rye soaked up a lot of moisture in the spring, which was really nice, so I could really walk in there pretty much every time. As opposed to some other type of ground Well, if you put, like... Straw mulch down. You got to worry about weeds coming through that. So I was just able to mow the alleyways, sure. which which made it a lot easier, and I didn't have to mow it all the time. I planted a perennial rye grass, which during most years goes dormant because it's a cool season grass. So I don't have to mow it in July and August. No. So when I'm harvesting, I don't have to worry about mowing, which means I have I'm less disruptive. And then it comes back in September. Some years it just rains like crazy, like last year, and it's all you always have to take care of it. The uh, landscape cloth I planted. So essentially, what I did is I had rows that were the perennial crops were on four foot wide beds, and I have two foot of grass alleyways, and then I have three foot of annual crops. Okay. And so I had landscape cloth to cover both those, and the annual crops I. I burn in holes every foot. I did it on the stagger, so I had double rows and had the three-foot section. Sure. And so I would plant my strawberries in those holes, and that'd be fine. And then after the strawberries were gone, let's say I would plant pumpkins. Or if I would plant beans in those holes, I may have to make, you know, if I plant a tomato, I may skip a hole. Okay. But then I'd only have to weed that hole. Sure. And have to weed a lot. So it really saves on weeding. We did notice the, the difference between the labor cost of weeding one year and then you decided to buy landscape fabric. And that it was well worth the effort, believe me. <laughs> it just, and I don't know why, and if there's one thing I would say is like, invest in that. It just makes your life easier. So we would, since we had all these holes, you know, you just pick it up and then we could put down our compost put it back down and plant into those holes so again you're less disruptive now you have to worry about mice or holes that's another issue but part of the time we would leave some corn and they would just feed that instead of taking our seeds a trap crop (laughs) essentially that's what it was Um, you know we had a fence because we had to keep out groundhogs rabbits uh, deer and I'm sure you'll have to deal with these issues. It also kept out people somewhat. So fencing... People are by my most annoying issue. I, I found my house by seeing a family of deer up at the end of the street. Uh, the well, you're going to have to you're gonna have to put a fence up because sure. they will eat everything you got. So you might as well just invest in a good, invest in a good fence and be done with it. Sure. 
Um, Don't waste a year of learning the hard way. <laughs> correct. You just suck it up, and you're going to have groundhogs, and there's going to be skunks. Because if there's people, there's skunks, but fortunately, skunks will eat the grubs. But you still don't want them in your plots, okay? Um, so those are some of the... I have drip irrigation, and I don't use that much. Um, so that's another investment is... There's not much we can control with the weather, but we can't control how much of water. Sure. So in a drought year, it's worth it. In a rainy year, it doesn't matter. But if you got it, it's backup insurance. So those are some of the basic layouts. Uh, we had some treatments where we laid things out in solid rows. So I have solid row of apples, solid row of strawberries, solid row of blueberries. So it went high, low, high, low. Another concept is the pest like to move down rows. So our second treatment was we broke up the tall crops in the rows. So we had, you know, raspberries and peaches and blueberries and apples. So the idea was the blueberry pest stop at the peach, the peach pest would stop at the apple, the apple pest would stop there. So we'd have a mixed row arrangement. And then the third treatment we had was where we did a checkerboard pattern. So from the sky we had high, low going down the row and high, low going across and we kind of alternated it. Sure. And that was the most confusing to the pest. It was most confusing to us. We always were, it took us the longest to harvest those plots. We're always running into trees, bushes, trellises. We'd always leave data out. If there's one field plot that we always missed, we'd come back and we'd count. How the hell did we miss that again? Okay, so we'd always miss those. Uh, the fourth treatment was we made raised beds. And we put the mixed row arrangement on raised beds. And it was only 10 to 12 inches tall. And the raised beds always won in terms of yield. There are four reasons for that. And you may know these. First, it warmed up quicker in the spring. Better drainage. Less soil compaction. And the final one is the most important, which is more air to the roots, because you're getting air from three sides instead of one side, coming and waiting on wormholes. All right. So with all those, now obviously you had to water a little bit more. Um, so it would evapotranspirate faster. Yeah, but you know, having the landscape cloth really kept things down, and the landscape cloth really didn't heat the soil up that much. Mm-hmm. There was this little air barrier, and so... Black plastics, Just by virtue of it sitting on a rough surface? Essentially, yeah. So there was that, it acted as an insulator, so the soil remained cool all year. Hmm. Uh, and it allowed water to come through. So I think that it was really good, and it blocked the, the weed seeds from germinating. So I, I, I'm really sold on that. My raised beds, I'll show you the plot, but they were made out of landscape timbers okay. that I got from Lowe's. Gotcha. Okay, we stacked them on the side to make them a little taller because yep. they were flat on one side. Yeah. And then we put rebar and drilled it in, pounded it in, and every year with, they kept getting farther and farther. <laughs> one true. year we had to rebuild them to get them back because of the heaving of the soil. Um, but we did that landscape cloth parking lot's a different story and I'll talk a little bit about that too but uh, this was in the other plot and we wanted to make $10 per foot a row so if I had a double row of strawberries I had to get two and a half pounds out of a foot of strawberries over that picking season at $4 a pound that was my goal so blueberries were planted every five foot so I had to get 50 bucks 
per blueberry bush. And as the bushes matured, I was getting 15 pounds of blueberries per bush. And we were selling for about six to eight ounces for four to five bucks. That was easy. I was getting 150 bucks per bush. You selling it actually at markets around here? So OARDC actually for two years at a farmer's market. And for one of those years, I sold. Mm-hmm. And my requirement was I always had to be the highest priced person because all the other growers who came in, I couldn't undercut them because I was subsidized. Sure. But most of the guys were smart, knew that I set the market. So they were a little not price fixing they always would ask now what are you charging mm-hmm. or they could see what I was charging mm-hmm. and they would come to my level except for this one person came in and undercut us all by half all right. and she ruined the market for everybody she sold out but she screwed I said the, I said the high point you could be getting double what you want you could cut me in, undercut me by a quarter <coughs> it's fine but don't cut me by a half <laughs> Do you think she was making a living at that level? Well, no. What she did is she got subsidized help for picking. She would get all, we're a big Amish area. So she got all the Amish kids that she used to pay 50 cents. And so she, everybody else had to hire real labor, and she got cheap labor. Hmm. So she was made, but, I mean, it was like, it ticked us all off. Yeah, right. So don't ever be that person. How many vendors? Um, we had as maybe 15. It was, was small. Was it free? Or did they pay? Did well, I had to pay? pay. I even had to pay. We had to pay hundred bucks. Hundred bucks, yeah. But I don't see how anybody makes money in a farmer's market. Really? I really don't. I in think. urban America, you don't. In urban site, I'm in a farming community. Sure. That's a different thing. I had hard people, even the other growers that sold, said this is really hard to sell in a farming community. If you were in Cleveland or Columbus or Cincinnati, that's a different. You were still able to make hundred fifty dollars per bush, though. Yeah, if I sold everything. Right. But I could, there was not enough. Okay, so you did that, yeah. My ultimate goal would be that you sold to your neighbors. You would either have a delivery system, a CSA, or some other method. And I thought farmer's markets were really good for advertising, to make people aware of their use. As many CSAs find it's good for advertising, and they do it for the advertising, but right. you know, break-even or a loss leader in order to get those accounts to... So you, you're, you're agreeing with me about the farmer's market? Sure, yeah. Yeah, well, I got the data, and I was like, what the hell? I'm not making any stinking money here. And it didn't take, I wasn't a genius, but I could see that... But I did realize that, that that's definitely good for marketing. Is there any buyer around here who could take your excess? Well, we did have... There's a group in Cleveland. I forgot the name. Fork to Farm, Farm to Fork. The cafeteria at the school didn't buy you? (laughs) Well, I didn't. I'm a researcher. Sure. So I just wanted to collect my research data. I only did some of this dabbling to make sure I knew what I was talking about. Mm -hmm. But there was a group came in and bought... I don't know, 50 flats of blueberries for me. They right. picked them. They came in, picked them up. They got it. I got the check. Were they washed? Processed? Washed? No? All right. So we just picked them, put them in there, and they took them and sold them. So that was the way to do it. The other other thing is that I have gleaners. 
So we used to have, I used to invite people from people. I'm a cleaner. People, people, people <laughs> ministries to come in mm-hmm. and pick it for their uh, food thing, uh, food bank. And then I had a couple other people. We have a local roots, which is like a farmer's market all year round indoors. So the farmer doesn't have to sit there. There's a per- person. So it's like a little grocery store, but somebody manages it, and it's all fresh local produce. All right. So we would pick my stuff. Somebody would pick my stuff from, uh, what was it called? Family services. So people on welfare would come in and pick, and then they would sell it, and we'd split the profits. So I had some money, and they were making some money, and people were eating produce. So I could feed a lot of people. I was surprised on this acre, although I only had like an eighth of an acre of strawberries and blueberries and things like that. So I made money on most of the fruit crop, reached my $10 per foot of roll go. At least at like, you did that at that rate. You you could have hit that rate if you were going for But I couldn't mess around. Sure. I had to pick everything. I had to pick it on time. I didn't have many damage, but I could do it. Mm-hmm. I couldn't make any money on green beans. I couldn't make any money on most of the vegetable crops. Sweet corn, forget it. No. I made pop. I, I did popcorn, and I don't know if I could do, but I had red and red and uh, blue popcorn. So you got to make sure as an added value thing, right? You know, so you have to do stuff that's different, but you can't do stuff that's too different because people say, "Well, I got peaches. How come you don't have peaches?" Well, we're in Ohio. We don't have peaches yet. You know, it's not California. With the high tunnels, I got the best yields. My raspberry yield doubled inside the high tunnels as opposed to outside. I got a week to ten days early on my early plants, my early varieties. I got three weeks earlier on my late varieties. So when I was picking varieties you know, Ohio for my late variety of peaches, that's when they were picking in Tennessee. So I became Tennessee. But getting first to market really makes, makes a difference. Hmm. And, in fact, we have our local grocery store is Jewelers, and uh, they have buyers, and they try and buy to local, and they go to local routes to see what's coming available. Sure. And then they go to an auction to buy them, and they said uh, they saw blueberries and raspberries. They said, those aren't local. We're getting them from Mexico. Mm-hmm. You know, these can't be local. It's like, ah, we <laughs> come got... See it. See, yeah, come see us. You know, and that, that, so that was very pleasing to me that we were being the market on that. So can't mess around. It's hard to make it on vegetables alone, but what vegetables do is it helps you spread out the season. Um, you know, my green beans taste like everybody else's green beans. My strawberries taste better. All right. <laughs> really, my blueberries, because they're really picked fresh, and that makes a big difference when I don't have to ship. Well, for the purposes of the listeners, we've been talking about a polyculture planting, about an acre, an acre and a half. It was actually a planted acre. There was about an acre and a half with alleyways. And you've gotten a little bit internet famous for that. You've got your articles out there, and a lot of people have read it. Or articles about the subject, but sure. you've also been recently doing breaking up a parking lot and planting in a parking lot. Right. So we we notice there's a lot of asphalt in Detroit or Cleveland or big cities sure. that's not being used, and everybody's afraid of using it. One technique people do use is to put a lot of wood chips down, 
which is okay if you can get a lot of food. Right on top of that. Right on top of the asphalt. And then they build some right type of raised beds. Some people build raised beds and they do what they call lasagna planting, where they kind of put wood chips and soil and food scraps and corrugated and newspaper and more soil. And then they plant into that, and that works okay for vegetable crops. But I had access to this parking lot behind an abandoned dorm, and what I wanted to do was to uh, see if we could make that productive. So we set up different treatments on there. One treatment, we set, we planted things in big pots. So we had a lot of the plants that were in my other polyculture system. I actually dug them out and put them into the big tubs that were almost like hot tub size. Sure. They're very expensive. Okay. <laughs> 50, 60 bucks a pot mm-hmm. plastic. But we were able to transplant our bushes and our trees. We went over there. They're pretty big trees. They're very big, yeah. And we put them in there, and we're seeing how... If, if I had time left in my career, I would be planting new trees in each one of those plots and let the trees establish in the plot. Mm-hmm. But because I'm running short on my career, I wanted to make sure that I had food to evaluate and I didn't have the time to wait. So we planted things in pots. We also were trying to do some vertical agriculture where we used these cattle panels and then we would hang the pots on the cattle panels. So I have strawberries planted in the pots and I'll have uh, some beans or some lettuce or whatever. So that's one treatment is to use these polyculture system but within the pots and you don't disrupt the asphalt at all. The second treatment was we were going to just grow on top of the asphalt and we made our own raised beds and we made them about two and a half feet tall and we got the cattle panels again and then we lined them with landscape cloth and then we added a soil mixture of uh, four parts wood chips two parts compost, one part soil, and one part sand. And we mixed it, and then we filled the raised bed. So we started out with about 12 inches, 10 inches, 12 inches of wood chips, and then we put our potting soil mix on top of that, and then we planted the trees. Did uh, a contractor mix that all for you and bring it there, or did you do all that work? Well, we ended up, we got the front-end loader, we had the soil <laughs> delivered, we had the sand, the wood chips, and we just started picking mixing, it up and dumping picking it. Picking it and dumping, <laughs> picking it and dumping. Pretty soon we had a nice mix. All right. And then we were able to dump it. And it was, it was labor-intensive, mm-hmm. but if you have machines, you can rent things. Sure. And that works out pretty well. So we did the same planting there, and then, so these, these uh, raised beds are pretty high, two and a half feet, but putting the trees in there also makes it really tall. Mm-hmm. What's the point of having a dwarf tree when you add another two and a half feet onto the base? So, so you are on concrete. You could just have a little man mover. Well, one could think of doing different things like that. That's true. The third treatment we did, which is my favorite, is we got an asphalt cutter and we cut out trenches wherever the rows were. So the rows are three foot wide by 30 feet long. We came in then, cut it out, and then came with the backhoe, scooped it out, the top off, scooped out the gravel underneath, some of the compacted soil underneath, built mini raised beds, because we learned that from the high tunnel, the uh, polyculture project of about 8 to 10 inches, and then we filled that in with our mix and planted into that. And that really seems to be working well. 
Um, Does it have some special advantage? Smaller. No, right. <laughs> we don't have to weed it all. Sure. Uh, on any of the treatments. Um, on one of the other treatments that I forgot to mention is that we use those cattle panels, right? And these cattle panels are usually about 50 inches tall by 15 feet long. All right. So they keep the cattle or the pigs within the area. So we use those. And uh, we, what I said, we hung pots on those for our vertical. And in the other treatments where I had the raised beds, we had flower boxes we made. And so we were growing strawberries in the flower boxes. And so you have multiple layers sure. growing up. So to, instead of just having two rows of strawberries, we have now six rows of strawberries within this section. Um, so that works pretty good. We're also adding high tunnels on some of those treatments to make sure we get this early as a season. As you can expect, we'll get a lot of heat units in March and April, but in July and August we'll have too many heat units as well, so we'll have to figure out venting. We have a drip, triple, trickle irrigation system in there as well. Um, so we're hoping that we'll have less pest pressure because if you can imagine, most of our insect pests come from the sky. They literally do rain out of the sky. From how high up? Miles. Really? We know this because we have airplanes and people have put nets on airplanes and you can collect insects (laughs) up there. And these, the air to an insect is like water. So you can swim, but you get caught in these currents, mm-hmm. and you go, and you can come, you can move a little bit, but you're kind of at mercy of the wind. A lot of our pests come from the south on the thermals during thunderstorms, and then they rain down upon us. Mm-hmm. But in a parking lot, we have updrafts, right? Heat is rising. As the heat is rising. So what impact is that rising heat having on those? But is that going to act as a barrier to push some of those? pests coming out from the skies or disease spores? Is it going to push the disease spores? Or sure. We don't know a lot of this stuff. And uh, when we were walking around there, it just occurred to me, well, you don't have to mow the parking lot. <laughs> you don't have to mow at all. <laughs> exactly right. And you can spend your time doing other things. But So those are your two, the two kind of high-profile projects here, the polyculture plot and polyculture in the parking lot. Right. Do you have any other secret secret projects you're not telling us about? <laughs> I have ideas, but we're not there yet. To yeah. Do you have anything clever that you, you might not get a chance to do yourself, but you'd like to put out there for somebody else to try? Well, the next thing we actually are doing this year is no matter, because I'm in Ohio, we have a tremendous pest complex. Okay. Why is that? Because of our location, we're wet. We get a lot of southern pests come up. We get a lot of northern pests. We get pests from the Midwest. We get them from the East Coast. (laughs) So we're at the center of a lot of different pests, and and they kind of converge in this area. All traveling by air. Most by air, yeah. And uh, one of the... So you're going to... No matter... I always say that nature bats last. Most ecologists say nature bats last. Sure. So no matter what we do, you have to adjust to nature. And you're going to have to have some sort of pest management practice to manage your pests to get high-quality fruits and vegetables. You can grow some things with minimal inputs. Blueberries are one, although birds can be an issue. 
Um, but generally speaking, you're going to have to do something. So what we're trying to do is incorporate a fixed spraying system. So instead of going around and just using a backpack sprayer to apply some sort of insecticide or fungicide, we're going to incorporate it into our trellis system. Some of this work was done at Cornell University. And if we can incorporate that, we just have to hook up our tank of pesticides, turn a valve on, it sprays for a minute, turn it off. We're done spraying. Mm -hmm. And since we have the structure already there with a lot of the cattle panels and a lot of the trees, we could weave in misting type of uh, emitters Hmm. and just calibrate and just do our spraying within a short period of time. For all different types of things, fungicides, pesticides? Yeah, the the issue will be to find the registered product for all those multiple crops. Mm -hmm. And that's why we'd be leaning more towards you know, organically approved pesticides or short residual pesticides because if spraying is not a big issue for us, we can do it every couple days if you just have to turn a valve, sure. you know, for a minute or two and you'd be done as opposed to going through getting up the spray suits and getting things. We noticed that there wasn't any expenses on your report for, or you call them biocides? I, think. I would call them a biocide. Okay. Okay, so yeah, so. Just the whole, yeah, any pesticide or fungicide. Did you use any in the polyculture plot or the parking lot yet? No. Well, in the yes and no. When I had to save a tree, I sprayed the tree. All right. But generally speaking, we didn't apply any uh, pesticides at all. And in that, 50% of the insects that we caught were classified as pests. Mm-hmm. So each year we caught... 20, over 20,000 individual insects that we identified in our sampling period. I got 78 different species of beneficials, 61 species of pests, and 65 different species of incidentals, either good or bad, over the six-year average. But it's still, over time, people say that you will get less pests. Well, you do get less pests. But still, 50% of everything I catch is still a pest. So that's why you'll have to, <laughs> even if you do everything right, yeah. there's a food out there that wants to be eaten, mm-hmm. and something will eat it. Now, you talked about the costs. When I set up my polyculture system, it was about $25,000 per acre to set it up without the high tunnels. The high tunnels cost, the quarter acre cost me about 18000 Pesticides are insignificant. Like $100 a year, $1,000? Hundreds, maybe. Less than 100 Sure. Um, and we're pretty efficient with our timing. So and we don't, when we, if, I, if I were doing this, I wouldn't spray everything all at once. I yeah. would spray the apples, but I wouldn't have to spray the peaches or the raspberries or the blueberries. If I had a problem on the blueberries, I would spray them and not the apples. So you're not spraying the total acre all the time. And so on the parking lot project where we try to integrate this fixed spraying system, we're going to have to figure out how to do this. Like four or five different layers of... Lines. I mean, and actually, tubing is relatively cheap, too. But, you know, to make money, you have to invest money. So on that $25,000, I invested for the polyculture system because of fencing, irrigation, landscape cloth, without labor... I um, I 
until I got it back in about two years. Really? Yeah. And when I did the high tunnels, I was able to... You actually made that money back in two years, or... I projected. I could have made it. Cool. Okay, we make it back in about two years, and then we could start making some money. Labor was, I calculated, as about 10% of my gross that I had to, just as a... In retail, labor is... 30% 30% or more. So. Right. So, well, that was it, but maybe mine was subsidized. Sure. Or, but anyway, that's, that's the cost I came up with. Yeah. Uh, just for how much picking we would have to do. Does anybody, Has anybody copied you? Is there any one-acre polyculture plot out there making 50K a year? I know there have been several growers in the area have started, and what I always tell people is start small. I had to do it for research purposes, and it almost killed me to get it started. But I would just start from the labor of it, the labor of doing it, and it was difficult to set it all up. And but over time, once you get it established, it's not that bad because things grow at different rates. You're planting at different times. You're spreading the labor out, so it isn't that bad. Uh, but just again, to make fifty or ninety thousand dollars from an acre sounds like the holy grail of agriculture. And you'd think people would be clamoring to figure out how to do it. It's a lot of work. So the work is the deterrent. The work is the deterrent. Alright. And the other deterrent is you cannot compete with the major grocery stores. You have to market. in a rural area or even in an urban area? Oh uh, well a lot of the places that people grow or trying to do this are in poor areas. Mm-hmm. It's tough to base an economy on poor people because they have, what, no money. <laughs> Therefore, in order to do this, you have to have sell to at least wealthier people. Not real wealthy, but people who have disposable income. Sure. And because of our economies of scale and our agricultural system, is so efficient because we've built... You can't use polyculture to feed commodity buyers. No, it's just too difficult. And you can't do this on five or ten acres. It's really... It's tough to do it on an acre. Hmm. It's Now... One, so five or ten acres would be too much. Well, it, you can do anything you want given enough time <laughs> and money. Sure. Really. And that's where you have to decide how much is too much. There is a sweet spot yeah. that you have to reach. Um... But it's also tough to compete with having cheap oil when we can ship from around the world and still buy raspberries, you know, at three or four dollars a pint. Mm-hmm. That's tough to beat. What you have to market is your local and you're better because you're fresher. And that and it's tough to you can't compete on price until gas skyrockets, which it may sometime. But now that's what makes it tough to market. If you've got a good marketing system, you've got a good delivery system, or you have a good CSA, people still underprice, I think, the value of your commodity. Because ah. they're competing with the grocery stores. And you just have to say, if you want to buy it, go to the grocery store. But this is what it takes. And if you price it right, I think you could sell it because it's fresher, it's more environmentally sound, it's local. And I think that's what you would market because mm-hmm. you'll lose on price. So that's what's holding people back. So you have to pick where you are in an urban area 
or a peri-urban area. Sure. And then you'd have to be a good marketer. And if you got that, producing enough, two and a half pounds per foot is conceivable. At $4 a pound. $5 a pound, you'll have to produce two pounds per foot. Mm-hmm. And you felt you reached those yields. I can do that on fruit crops. All right. On vegetable, I can't. When we grew tomatoes, I couldn't sell a 10-ounce tomato for four bucks, but I could sell 10 ounces worth of grape tomatoes for four bucks. <coughs> so, you know, that's kind of a different... That's a marketing issue as well. So you got to plant something that's common but different. Sure. And you got to have what your customer base wants. Well, I'd like to thank Dr. Joe Kovach. Thank you very much for taking the time to do this interview with us. I personally own a bit of land, so I have an interest in mimicking Dr. Kovach's work. I'm eager to test this idea that I can perhaps make a substantial living from a single, intelligently planted acre. Dr. Kovach and his colleagues produced some pretty thorough documentation of their polyculture plot, so very clear instructions do exist for anyone who wants to copy the method. Perhaps on a smaller scale, a tenth of an acre or a quarter acre would probably be just right. I want to invite all of you, my fellow Agro-Innovations listeners, to seek out the innovators and heroes of agriculture and appropriate technology in your region and record their stories. Then you can send your cassette tapes and audio files to Frank. That is all from me. Once again, my name is AJ Tarnas. This has been yet another episode of the Agro Innovations Podcast. Until next time, saludos. Saludos.